We're going to uh, begin back where we are in Matthew chapter 5. We are dealing with the laws in the Millennial Kingdom as they're given to us by Jesus. And before we do so, let's open in just a word of prayer this morning. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, once again, we have in our hands a, a rare treasure. We have the written word of God. We have a book that we can depend upon because it is true, it is accurate, and it tells us what we need to know to live, Father, but it also tells us many things for our benefit that we can understand what believers at other times in history, in, in the history of your dealings with humanity, what they have, what they will have, what it will be like then and as well as what it was in the past. And we're looking at something, Father, now that is not often thought about, but it's laws concerning the Millennial Kingdom, a kingdom which is yet to be established, but a kingdom that will be when Christ comes to set it up himself, and it will be for a thousand years. And this, Father, in this study then, we just ask that you would give us wisdom and grace that we might recognize how fortunate we are to live in the time we do and what it will be like to live in that time. Bless us in these things, and may the Spirit of God be our teacher. We ask now in our Savior's name. Amen. So, in, uh, Joe, did you get some notes? There are, uh, Cheryl has notes over there. We're adding to our, to our uh, current series. As we mentioned, uh, our notes are, all, for those of you who are on the Internet, our notes are up to date all the way up to page 35. If you go onto our church website and under Documents, and you go to View Documents, and uh, you go to the file with my name, Don Hewitt, on it, you'll find Looking to the Future, and that's this series right now, so you can get all 35 pages if you want them and, and don't have them. Uh, also, uh, we're, this is being broadcast, but we should remind you, those of you who are joining us on the Internet, there is a class that precedes this that is going to be available on the Internet as well on the Christian life, and we urge you, if you have not gone through that class with our church or with, with the uh, Valley Baptist Church in Gaston, Oregon, if you haven't gone through the Christian life class, uh, you'll want to tune into that. Brother Scott is doing that, and it's going to be at 8.30 in Florida time, and so uh, it will be starting, it'll be on next week, I uh, believe. Part of it today. Part of it, part of it is on today. You can view part of it from today, and you can view it at any time during, at, your, uh, at your convenience, and starting next week, it will be on in, in uh, total. So if you haven't been listening to The Christian Life, uh, you're missing something. So that's at 8.30, and then, of course, our Sunday school here is at, is at 9.30. Now, we're back in Matthew chapter 5. We're back in a popular section of Scripture that people misuse today. Uh, of all the parts of Scripture that are, are misappropriated and misread, misused, uh, none is as graphic practically as the book of Matthew. And of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, probably the worst, most misused section is Matthew 5 through 7. And that is because people will not take the Bible literally. Now, there is on page 32, and we're going to begin, we're starting on page 32. There is a note down partway toward the bottom of the page. There's one correction I want to make on it. Point number three with a, with a half parenthesis around it. I said that problem with the traditional view is it's not literal at all. Speaking for myself, this writer does not take the writings of anyone that does not interpret literally, and I left one word out. It does not interpret literally. I don't take anyone that doesn't interpret literally. Add the word seriously. If somebody is taking a section of scripture and is not taking it literally, I don't take that interpretation seriously. You can't take it seriously. How can anybody say, well, God didn't mean what he said. What he really meant was it was symbolic of this. If you're going to say something symbolic, you better show me something in scripture that says this is symbolic in some way. But I don't see it in Matthew 5. So that statement down there, point number three, 
I, speaking for myself, this writer does not take the writings of anyone that doesn't interpret literally. I don't take it seriously. Not the section they're doing. You can't take it seriously. If, if it's up to me, if it's up to anybody to determine what God has said, then why didn't God just say it in the first place? Doesn't it make sense? If God wanted something to be, if God meant Israel to be the church, wouldn't he have said something that said Israel is the church? But you don't find that in Scripture. Now, this, in, in this study now, we're on the sixth millennial law, and, uh, and what we've been looking at is the fact that there are six unique laws that are given in the fifth chapter of Matthew that are going to be laws in the millennial kingdom. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have wondered about that, but if you've ever wondered about it, there are six distinct laws that you can see here. Now, you'll find, and, and this is not in your notes, but uh, the, the statement, I say, is found nine times in Matthew chapter 5, which is quite a few. And six of the nine times, it refers to new laws for the millennium. Now, if you want to make a note in, on your paper, if you like to write, uh, the, the laws that are identified by I say are found in verses 22, 26, 28, 32, 39, and 44. So that's 22, 26, 28, 32, 39, and 44. And all of those indicate that there is a law being changed. Now, one of the things you have to remember, too, is that Israel's relationship with God is different than the churches. And that's one problem because Israel had a relationship as individuals. Individuals were saved or lost, just like Christians are saved, unsaved Christians are not. But there's one distinction where people have not seen, seen this, is that Israel as a nation related to God, and the nation was responsible corporately to keep the law of Moses. Now, the problem comes in, and when I was a young Christian, I heard so many sermons on the radio uh, where they would take things out of the Old Testament, out of the prophets, and say, this is what America should do, and America's going to do this or else. Now, wait a minute. Is America a covenant relationship with God? Do we have some promises like Israel did as a nation? No, we do not. And that's what causes a lot of problems because people want to, want to take America and say, we have a relationship as a nation to God. No, we don't. No, we don't. We were a nation founded with a lot of Christians. But I would, I would not, myself, I would not be willing to say this was a quote-unquote Christian nation. I would say when we were founded, this nation was heavily influenced by Christianity and there were a lot of Christians here. But then there were a lot of people that were called deists, like Benjamin Franklin. God was a watchmaker. He started to, he started to watch go, and then he went off and let, the, and let things go. And so it was up to us. So we need to be careful about that. So what are we getting at now? The sixth law is a little different from some of the others in that it's a, it's a law that governs civil conduct. What we call the civil society is it's kind of the ethics that you have when you deal with people in public. Uh, in America to this day, it's customary to be polite to people in public ordinarily. I mean, if someone walks up to you and says, hi, you don't slap them. You know, I mean, that, well, that, maybe that'll start happening. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Joe, you, you know as well as I do, this country's changing. Maybe someday it's going to happen that way. But there are certain things that govern how we treat other people in society. And so this is a law that governs that because if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, You'll notice Jesus said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. 
And then he goes on. We'll, we'll look at the next verse. But uh, this, is, this is personal conduct. Now, again, in our notes, you'll notice on page 32, and we're on page 32, under point, major point B, the law, the law governing the Jews' personal relationship to God is different. And so you have here, you'll notice a statement, but I say unto you, now please remember, when Jesus said, I, I, but I say unto you, he is not giving some deeper spiritual meaning to something out of the Old Testament. That's a traditional interpretation, and that equals allegory. Because if, for example, after church, Dan and I are talking, and someone comes up and says, hey, uh, what do you think about this, Don? Well, I would say, well, Dan said that. Dan said this, but I say. Now, what am I doing? I'm, I'm saying that what Dan, I disagree with what Dan said. I'm not agreeing. We're, I'm changing it. There's something different. Now, when Jesus said, you've heard it, you've heard it said, which means you've heard it read. Remember, they didn't, everybody didn't own their own copy of the Bible. Scrolls were expensive, so they heard it read. So you've heard it said. It was read in a synagogue. But I say to you, is he agreeing with it? No, he's saying, that's what you've heard, this is what I'm saying. In other words, it's different. And the traditional interpretation, you'll notice I put here, the traditional interpretation states that loving the enemies, now this is a quote, now the man that I'm quoting from, uh, I don't have a vendetta against him because I use him frequently, in fact, later in my notes, I quote from him something that I agree with. But I don't take him seriously here because listen, what he, listen to what he says about this relationship in Matthew 5.44. He says, love your enemies. So what does he say about it? And this is a quote you'll notice. We wish well to a person of another, although we cannot approve of his conduct. This is the love of benevolence, and this is the love we are to bear toward our enemies. We may wish well to the person. We may pity his madness and folly. We may speak kindly of him and to him. We may return good for evil. We may aid him in time of trial. We may seek to do him good here and promote his eternal welfare. Now notice he says, this seems to be what is met. You notice, this seems to be what is met. What does that mean? I, th- I think. Yeah, Dan said it. Thank you, Dan. Dan said, I don't know. But it seems to be, in other words, I like this. I'm going to go with this. It seems to be what is meant by loving our enemies. Now notice, he says this. Now notice what he said. This is, a, this is a special law of Christianity in the highest possible test of piety. And probably the most difficult of all duties to be performed. This is the most, you notice that. This is a special law of Christianity in the highest test possible of piety. I'm sorry, folks. I can't agree with that. I'll tell you what I believe the highest test of, of the faith is. What does it say in John 13, 34, and 35? It says, love one another. Everybody, does anybody forget what that means? John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so that you love one another. By this shall all know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. There you go, Dan. I've said it so many times. I know, I can, I know the King James. I don't know the Greek text that well, but I know the King James. But the point is, you want the highest test of Christian maturity, of Christian piety. Now, that piety is an old, old word we don't use anymore, of godliness or of spiritual conduct. What's the greatest test of spirituality? Is it fulfilling something that's given to Israel? Or are we going to take his words over the words we see in John 13, 34, and 35? I don't think I'm going to take his words. I don't think the highest test of piety is if I love people that are unsaved and hate me. I think the highest test is if I show that I have love for the brethren. Because after all, in Matthew, in John 13, please remember, if you have, let's take a moment and look at it again. 
John 13, 34 and 35. This is, this is key because this is the new commandment for the church. So if there is a highest test of piety or godliness, if there is, it's going to have to be this because this is the first commandment given and it's the only time Jesus said a new commandment I give to you. So if this is our commandment, then fulfilling this is the highest that we can go. John 13, 34, 35. He said, a new commandment I give unto you. First of all, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. You'll notice it's love one another the way he loved unselfishly. Christ gave an, had an unselfish love for his own, even though they didn't understand him, even though one of them betrayed him, right to the very end, he showed love to his own. So it's love and the standard of Christ's love. He said, as I've loved you, you love one another. And you notice it says that you love one another. Now, one another, there are two ways that you, there are two different Greek words that could say one, for one another. And this is one another of the same kind. That you love one another the same kind. In other words, you love other believers. You love one another. You love other believers like I've loved you. Now, if that's the new commandment, and that's the only commandment we're given, then that's probably the highest test of maturity, isn't it? So we've got to be careful of these people like that. Then he, then he said, By this shall all know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one to another of the same kind. So if we want to prove to the world that, we, that we're really for real, that Christ is for real, well, how do we do it? Is it because we go out there and we do all kinds of things for the world, do all kinds of nice things, we love those that hate us and so forth? What does it say here? If we show love one for another, the world's going to take us more seriously. The world's going to know. That's what it says here. The world will know that you're my disciples. They'll know we're the real thing. Now, there's your test, but you'll notice what this said. This is traditional Christianity, that they believe that the highest test of, of, of piety, of godliness, is by loving those that hate you. I have a, I just, I, I can't understand that. How you can say that and contradict Scripture. Now, there's another passage. If you want to write in your margin, write Titus 2, verses 11 through 13 on your notes. Write this in your notes if you like to write on your notes. And uh, I have written all over the notes things that I want to add to it. But we won't go there. But if you look at Titus 2, 11 through 13, I think you'll see a higher standard of what it means to be practicing your Christian life. Because it says that we live a certain kind of life, we live a life that's godly, because we're expecting to welcome the return of our Lord. In other words, we're looking for the rapture so much, and we expect it at any time, that we want to be found where we should be. We want to be found living the right way. It has an effect on how we live. And I'd suggest that's a higher test than loving, any, than loving unsafe people. So you can put that into it, but the greatest of those is John 13, 34, and 35. It's the new commandment, so therefore, if it's the new commandment for the church, then that's the standard that is the greatest for us to match up to, the greatest proof that we're godly. Now, the, the problem is that, that uh, the traditional view is not literal at all, and as I said in here my notes, speaking for myself, this writer does not take the writings of anyone that doesn't interpret literally seriously on that particular point. I don't take them seriously. Now, what's the problem here? First of all, Jesus was not speaking about the church. Now, if you want to do this, write in the margin of your notes G1577. If you use strong, if you rather if you use eSword, you can check me out on this. G1577 will take you to the Greek word without knowing Greek. You can go to eSword. You don't have to know Greek to use eSword. You can do it on the King James Plus setting. And you check out, because that's the word for church, G1577. It's ecclesia in Greek. It's, it's 
that got that number. If you check it out in Matthew, you'll find it is only used two times in Matthew. So the church must, must not have been very prominent. And the first time it is used is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And this is very late in the ministry of Christ. If you remember what this was in Matthew 16, and if you want to turn to Matthew 16, it's, it, you can see it very clearly. Christ is toward the end of his ministry. He's been formally rejected. I mean, over and over again, he's offered himself, and the, and the leadership has just kind of, they've turned the cold shoulder to this man. So in Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning at verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Okay, now there's an acid question for you. This shows you what did the people of Israel think of him? What were they saying? The disciples, remember the disciples were sent out. They were his emissaries. They were prophets that went out before him. So they intermingled with the people. Whereas Jesus could only be one place at one time. He could only get so much. He wanted to hear what they were saying. Now he knew, of course, in his deity he knew. Verse 14, and they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. Interesting, by this point, John the Baptist has been beheaded. So what is this, the headless horseman? You know, no. Well, they think it's, in other words, John the Baptist has come back to life. Well, that's interesting. Some say Elias, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now you'll notice, what did they, what did they not say? In verse 14, when the, when the disciples report back, what did they not say about who Jesus was? They didn't say he was the Christ, did they? Do you see Messiah or Christ in here? They didn't say that. He was a prophet. He said unto them, Who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father is in heaven. And I say unto you, You are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. I will future tense build my church. So, I will build my church means he hasn't done it yet, doesn't it? So, he hasn't started to build his church yet. So, how, pray tell, could we ever go back to Matthew 5 and say, well, this is about the church, this is about Christian ethics, when he hasn't even started to build the church, when he hasn't even said word one about the church, and when he only says, and only twice in Matthew, does he say anything about the church? And both of them are, relatively speaking, incidental compared to the main message of this book. This book is about the kingdom of the heavens. So that the big part that you have is you do not have anything about the church here. It's just not here. And now point C on the bottom of page 32, we're going to elaborate on this further. But there's nothing in the epistles to the churches that resembles what you see in Matthew 5.44. You won't find a verse, I say unto you, love your enemies, and so on. You won't find anything like that in the epistles to the church. We'll elaborate on that more. But now, top of page 33, if you're following along. I think the most important point of all is that the traditional understanding of this as being something that is Christian really contradicts what Jesus said in the upper room. Now, you'll notice, in the millennium, and I believe this is a millennial law, people will be told to love their enemies. That's going to include unsaved people. Because in the millennial kingdom, you're going to find at the end there's going to be a big revolt and they're going to be struck down and sent right to the lake of fire, those people that revolt. So they're unsaved people. There are going to be plenty of them in the millennium. So if someone is told to love, to love your enemies, the people that hate you, there are going to be some unsaved people in there. Probably most of your enemies are going to be unsaved people. But now, in the dispensation of grace, 
we are told to love one another. Now you'll notice again, another of the same kind, point number two in, in, in parenthesis there is, that's a reference to John 13, 34, and 35. I didn't put it on your notes, but I think most of us should recognize it, but that's what it is. Now, in addition to that, the fact that it says to love one another of the same kind, does that mean there's no obligation to love one another of a different kind? It means that there's no obligation to do that, doesn't it? If it says you love one another of the same kind, it's not, it's not saying anything about those that are different. In other words, there's no provision in the New Commandment for us to say that we're obligated to love the world. The only one thing I see there that we're obligated to love one another like Christ did. Now, if that's not good enough, then you'll notice I printed right in your notes number three, the Christian is specifically told, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, please notice, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So the first use of the word world does not refer to things that are in it. The, the trinkets, the toys, the material possessions, you know, the he who dies with the most toys wins, that old thing. And I, my favorite bumper sticker that I saw once, he who dies with the most toys still dies. I like that one. I saw that one too once. So the things of this world are different than the world. So when he says, love not the world, we're going to have to say, what is the world? If it's not things, what is it? It's probably people. It could be the planet. It could be the real estate. The world is used that way. But I don't think so. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's love not the world. I believe there's a strong probability that they said you don't love unsafe people or the things that are in the world. Now, that might not be quite accurate, but I believe that's a distinct possibility, and I tend to believe that's the case. The only other thing I can think of is love not uh, the planet Earth, love not the... Uh, nothing else fits in here and makes sense to say love not the unsaved. Well, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be hateful because look at the next note. The Christian does... We do have Galatians 6.10. It says, as we have opportunity, therefore... It's printed in your notes, Ephesians, uh, Galatians 6.10. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all especially unto those of the household of faith. So, while we're not told to love the world, we're not told to hate them either. We're not told to hold them in contempt. We're told we can do good for them as we have opportunity. But what do you notice here about the opportunity when we have opportunity? Do you see some favoritism here? He said, especially to the household of faith. So, even when we can do good for other people... If there's two people that need something and we can help one of them, one's a believer and one's not a believer, who do we help? We help the believer. Oh, a lot of people say you help the unsaved to prove the love of God. Well, I remember, I go right back to John 13. The world will know we love, the world will know we're Christians. The world will know this is the real thing if we love one another. And so if you see a Christian in need and you help your own family, you know, that would be, I don't know, an illustration. I, I always think in terms of, the, of, of kids. When our kids were little, if our kids needed shoes and the kids next door needed shoes, and uh, would you expect me to go buy the kids next door shoes and not buy my own kids shoes? Now, if I had enough money and wanted to buy shoes for the next door neighbor, which I was never in that position, but suppose I was, I could do it, couldn't I? But wouldn't you expect me to take care of my own family? Now remember, when we talk about loving one another, we're talking about the family of God. We're talking about loving our family. And when you put it in that light, I think it changes things. Not just love one another the same kind. You remember, we're the family of God. You're loving your, you're loving your own family. That's different. And you, could you imagine? I, those of us that raise kids, you know, the kids go through shoes. Your neighbor's kids need shoes. Your kids need shoes. You only have enough for one to buy a couple pairs. You're going to buy them for your own kids first, aren't you? 
I think that's what I think that's what most of it. And I think I think most people would think there's something strange about you if you bought shoes for their kids, someone else's kids rather, and not your own. They would think that you were, weren't a very good parent, and they would be right. Well, so so finally. The most important element about this contradicting the upper room is that John 13, 34 through 35 is for the church. Leviticus 19, 18 is for Israel. And that's the, that's the statement that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was their standard. That was their governing. In the Old Testament, that was the governing principle of conduct with Jews. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, that's not the same as saying, love one another as I've loved you. It's not, it's not divine love back there. It's a human-directed thing. It's something that something even unsaved people could do. They could be fond of their neighbor and treat their neighbor with decency. So don't give, up, don't give what we have to the Old Testament, and don't take what they have for us. Because love your neighbor as yourself is not the same as loving one another like I've loved you. That's a family love. That's the love of God. Now, Another reason that we have trouble with Matthew 5.44 is that it is different from the Old Testament and New Testament in, in at least two points. And here I'm going to extend upon what we, what we said in the bottom of page uh, 31, where, 32 rather, where it said that none of the things that are included, how do I put that on bottom of page 32, that uh, there's nothing that remotely resembles Matthew 5.44 in the epistles. So, you notice we say here, nowhere does the New Testament encourage the believer to love their enemies. Now, the word for enemies here is, is in your, if you're using, using eSword, and again, and again, we encourage you to, it's G2190. And by the way, I made a mistake. If you have your notes, back on the top of page 31, I put G2189, which is the same word. In a, there's masculine and feminine form of the word. It was the wrong form. It was the feminine form instead of the masculine. So back on the top of page 20, 31, where I have uh, the first line, it says, it says enemy in Matthew 540, 543 is G2189. It should be G2190. It's, it's the same root. It means the same thing. It's just that one of them was a feminine and the other is a masculine. And don't ask me why, but uh, the Greek language had masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and of all things, neuter nouns. Now that's, neuter nouns is like no genderless. That's one of the problems with the Holy Spirit. Did you know the Holy Spirit is a, uh, is a neuter noun? Spirit is neuter in Greek. That's why when you see the Spirit itself, that's what? Well, they translated it matching the pronouns, but it really should be the Spirit himself. So that was a mistake I made there. So that's, that's a minor correction, but it's one that you should, should have anyway. Now, there's nowhere in the New Testament that we're taught to love our enemies. And remember, this word for enemies is, is someone that has a violent hostility that could lead you to destroy someone's things and really harm someone's person. You know, it, it's, how did I put that in? Violent hostility can lead one to destroy things and harm one's enemies. Yeah, if you don't like somebody, you're going to go out and hurt them. And the illustration of that, again, if uh, we have it earlier, but I'll, you can write it in here. It's Matthew 13.25 shows you that this word is not just, I don't like you. This is a word like, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to do anything I can to hurt you, and even if I can't kill you. And you find that back in Matthew 13, 25. And I'll read verse 24. If you want to look at Matthew 13, 24 and 25, 26 with me, you'll see what we're talking about when we say this word is a word that means a violent act of hostility. It doesn't mean that you just don't like the guy. No, it means you're going to do more than that. You're going to hurt him. 
Another parable put he forth, Matthew 13, 24, unto them, saying, The kingdom of the heavens is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy, there's your same word, there's your G2190, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So why would he do that? Why would you sow tares in there? Tares are worthless. You're trying to destroy the man's crop. You're trying to impoverish him. You're trying to take his living away from him. That's what an enemy is. That's a violent hostility that will strike out because you want to do somebody hurt. And it'll even go further than that. It'll even go to killing them, obviously. Now, I don't think you're going to find any place in the New Testament where uh, the Christian is told to love, to have some kind of fondness for people who would like to kill him. We may, fi- we may face that today. We may face that. Who knows the way the world's turning on the Christian, the way this country's turning on the Christian. We may come to the point where people are going to want to do it because there is... If you follow anything in the news, you find there is a little bit of hatred towards us as Christians. Well, and you can go back to John 3 and find out why, because we're, we're light. We're exposing what they're like, and they don't like it. Well, and we find nowhere, now point number two is, we find nowhere this New Testament encouraged the believer to speak well about the ones that curse you. Now, we get the word eulogize from this, which is kind of funny that we don't eulogize them. Well, that's not... The New Testament doesn't use the word at a funeral. I've heard it said humorously, and really it probably wasn't humorously, that the only time you hear good things said about some people is at their funeral. And that's just, that's just word eulogized, so maybe, maybe it does have a sense of that. I don't know. But the Greeks didn't use it that way. So, and we'll find nowhere in the New Testament is a believer told to do good to those who hold you in contempt. Now, in Matthew 5.44, it says, uh, it says, pray for... Do good to them that hate you. Now, that word for hate there is not the same as enemy. That's the word we saw. It's G3404. It's the word for hate that we looked at, and it means you hold something in contempt. If it's a person, you wish they would just shut up and go away. And as I mentioned, I have a, a good friend in Oregon whose wife experienced that very thing when she and a friend were in a crafting class together or crafting club together and they were talking about Christian things. There were two of them who were believers and she overheard some people saying something about him and says, I just wish those two would just shut up and go away. And when I told this definition to my friend, his wife practically jumped up and down and said, that's exactly what happened to me. And that's a form of hatred that you see where they wish you'd just shut up and go away. They, don't, they hold you in contempt. They don't want anything to do with you. Now, you can see a perfect illustration. All you have to do is read John 6, 7, and 8, and you'll see a perfect illustration of what that is. Because Jesus would speak, and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes would stand up, and they'd contradict him, or they'd try to make him sound stupid, or they'd insult him publicly. What do you think that is? That's called contempt. It's also persecution. You hold somebody in contempt, and they couldn't stand him to be out there saying anything, so they would be right there with him, all over the place, and they would say rotten things about him. It's interesting today. Look over John 10. This isn't in your notes, but uh, we won't charge extra for this. But John chapter 10, I want you to see something here. Jesus is going to do something, and these men, these scumbags, these religious leaders, are right there, and they see something, and yet they're unmoved and unaffected by it. If you remember the story in John chapter 9, you have a man that's born blind that's given sight. And I like the way, he, the way he rebuffs the religious leaders and they threw him out of the synagogue. They, they dumped him out. And so we'll begin reading in John chapter 9, uh, verse 37. 
And Jesus said unto him, you have both, well, okay, we should go back to 35, excuse me. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said unto him, do you believe on the Son of God? And he, now this is the man that's been born blind, that's been given sight. And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? Jesus said unto him, you have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, at this event, who's there? This man is there, Jesus is there. But is that the only people that are there? Let's read on further. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that they, that they which see might not see, and they which see might be made, that they, would, that, they might, that they which see might not see, and that they which see not might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, Are we also blind? Now what are they there for? Are they there because this, this is going to influence them? Are they there because they're going to believe this is the Messiah? Are they there because of that? No, he's going to turn right around. Look what he says to them in verse 41. Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your, your sin remains. Then he goes right into chapter 10. and There's no chapter break. Here's the place where chapter breaks drive you batty. Because chapter 10 is not a new event. It's a continuation of what's going on because he turns and says to them, Amen, amen, or verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold but climbs up some other way the same as a thief and a robber. Who do you suppose is a thief and robber in this context? The man that had been born blind that now worships Jesus? Or these idiots that say, are we blind also? The religious leaders. See who he's talking to? Context tells you that. And when you read, so often in the Gospels, if you read carefully, you'll find that when Jesus was speaking, these, these scribes and Pharisees were right there with him. And, and you know why they were with, with him? They're not there because they want to learn from him. They're not there because they want to hear him. They're there because they can't stand him. They hate his success. And even Pilate knew that they delivered him for envy. You'll find that in, in the Gospel accounts when Pilate sees Jesus. He knew that they delivered him because of envy. They hated this man. They held him in contempt because he could, he could speak to the people and they would listen to him. And the Jews, the leadership, they, could not, they couldn't do what he could do. And they could not stand him. So, going back to and that's, that's just that's free material there. That you can add in later. But nowhere in the New Testament does it tell a Christian to do good to someone that holds him in contempt. So I, I have a hard time understanding how we can take this and, and take this and make tra- this traditional interpretation and say this is some high form of love for the church to do Matthew 5.44 when it's not supported by anything in the epistles. It's just not supported. And really, you'll notice in the, toward the bottom of page 33, Point B, and we didn't elaborate on it, but neither was Israel told to do any of the things in Matthew 5.44. If you go through the Old Testament and you look to see, were they told to hate their enemies in the Old Testament? Yeah, they were told to hate their enemies. Were they told to do good for them? No, uh-uh, no. They were never told to. None of these things in Matthew 5.44. So this law is something entirely new. It's something that has never been done. It will be done in the Millennial Kingdom. And it shows you, Millennial Kingdom is going to be so different because society is going to be different. Can you imagine a situation where you could have people that actually hate you to the point they would do just do harm to you if they could. But now in the Millennial Kingdom, please remember, there is an angelic police force that will take those that offend out of the kingdom. So the people will hate, but they won't be able to do anything, but they'll be seething and wishing they could. Could you imagine going up to that person and trying to love them? Even as a Christian, I don't know, it's kind of hard to do it. 
Well, what, why should they do it then? You might ask, okay, why would a millennial saint do something like this? Well, I believe you have the answer here. You notice what he says in verse 45. He says, You do these things that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise upon the evil and the good and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. Now, this top of page 34 in our notes. So Matthew 5.45 is a statement of purpose. Now, you'll notice I gave you, once again, I gave you the Strong's number that you can check this word out. But it's a word that indicates a purpose or a reason for doing something. And normally in English, in the, in, the, in the King James, if you see that in a verse, you can pretty much figure that it's, it's talking about either a purpose, a reason for doing something, or some kind of result that will come if you do it. And here it's talking about a purpose. It's in order that. So it's in order that, and you'll notice it says, in order, it says, in order that you may be the children of your, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, you may be, Subjunctive. Dan knows what I'm talking about. It suggests possibility. You might become. Now, why does it say that? Because not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody necessarily is going to do it. There's no guarantee. Just because Jesus said, You've, this is the law, this is what's going to be, are they all going to do it? Who knows? We don't know. It hasn't been done yet. It hasn't even happened. But it indicates possibility. Now, I want you to notice something. You'll, you'll notice that, uh, by the way, children here is literally, in, in the King James translated children, it's the word for sons, the normally translated word for sons. Now, what this is not, you'll notice point number A, this is not, emphatically, not a verse telling those in the millennial kingdom how to be saved. Because if it was telling them how to get saved, it would be the only time in the word of God that someone could earn their salvation. And I'm here to tell you, that ain't happening. That's not possible. That is not possible. But there's something that's more obvious, that should be more obvious in here. When you look at son, as it's used in the Gospels and in the Epistles to the church, it emphasizes maturity that can result in someone having position and privilege. Now, I can show you that. It's right in, well, I printed it in your notes. Look at your notes. Romans 8:14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons, the mature ones of God. Now, it says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, does that mean all Christians are led by the Spirit of God? <laughs> no. No. Scott's shaking his head. No, he's right. It says as many as are. So there's some Christians that don't get led by the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're carnal. They're not mature. It says they, the ones that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons. They are the mature ones. I'm here to tell you, whether we like to admit it or not, there are immature Christians that never grow beyond a certain point, And they never they never get to the point where the Holy Spirit's going to be able to lead them because they have so many problems with their old nature and they're living like they used to live. And, well, Romans talks about them, Romans 8. It's those, those that are after the flesh do the things of the flesh. That's where their mindset is. They think about it. That's what they want to do. But it's possible, then, for some to become mature. Now, point number C, and this is something that, that, that you probably wouldn't have thought about. I didn't think about it until I studied this, and I said, my word, I can see this. There is the possibility for spiritual growth in the millennial kingdom, that you may become the sons of God. Now, when it says become the sons of God, you might become, you might become mature. Is there spiritual maturity possible in the, in the millennial kingdom? I believe there is, and that's what this is saying. And the principle is there. 
I don't think there's any question, whatever, wherever you go in Scripture, when God is dealing with a group of people that, that are saved, there is always, always, always God's desire for them to grow spiritually, to grow in some way. You can see it in the Old Testament. I want you to look back at Jeremiah chapter 9. This is one of the, one of the places in Jeremiah that just makes you stop and shake your head and say, wow, I wouldn't have thought of this. And it's kind of interjected in a section where it's almost, uh, it almost seems like it doesn't belong in a way. Because if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 9, um, we'll begin reading at verse, verse 19. And we'll read down to verse 24. It says, For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. Jeremiah 9, uh, verse 19. How are we spoiled? How, how we are greatly confounded because we've forsaken the land. Because of our dwellings we are cast out. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women. Let, let your ear receive the word, uh, word of his mouth and teach your daughters wailing and everyone his neighbor lamentation. For death has come into our windows and has entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without, and the young men from the streets. Doesn't sound very good yet. It's, it's going to get worse. Speaks, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and, and as a handful of men after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Boy, it's getting worse. But now listen to this. Verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his, in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but he that glorieth, let, but let him that glorieth glory, glory in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So what did God want from the Old Testament believer? Did he want them just to brutally obey the law and just do the Ten Commandments and not do those things wrong that they shouldn't do? No. God wanted them to know something about who he was what he was like to know and to understand. Now, and our time is up, but I want to, I want to leave you on, on a positive note. If you look over at 2 Peter chapter 3, the last words that are recorded by Peter <coughs> are, I think, important. The last things a man has to say in print, in Scripture, indicates they must be pretty important to that person and maybe the most important thing on his mind at that time. They probably were. So, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, what's on, what's on Peter's mind? You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also be led, led away with the error of wickedness and fall from your own steadfastness. But, contrary to that, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him is the glory now and forever. Last things, but grow in grace. Last things Peter says. Grow in grace. So I would say this morning that that is the important part. God always wants spiritual growth. Now I believe when you look at this and you put this in its context when Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 45, that you might become the mature ones of God by doing those things. They would grow. They would become mature in the millennial kingdom. That's maturity. But don't forget today God wants that from us. We'll come back and uh, we'll con continue this and hopefully we'll be done with this series. We're going to move on from, uh, from here. I haven't decided just where we're going, but we'll be done in another week or so. But I want to leave you with the thought that the most important thing for us today is that if we're using love the right way, if we're, if we're fulfilling the main requirement for the church, 
and we're loving the brethren, the family, as we should, then we have the foundation, we have the, we have the doorway open for us to grow in grace. And that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to go out and, and cure the ills of society. You know, we don't have the wealth to do that. And isn't it funny that the one who does have the wealth to cure the ills of society won't do it? Satan holds the world's power. Go back to Luke chapter 4. He holds all of it. The wealth and riches are all his. Now, if anybody really wanted to straighten out the problems of the world, don't you think Satan could do something with all that wealth that he's got? No, we can't do it. And, and our love doesn't belong out there. Our love belongs within, within the family. Just remember, this is the family of God. We love the family of God. We love our family. We don't love our neighbor's kids, but they need shoes. We love our family. And we can grow by grace. And that's what God wants.